Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. And I'm Pete Wright, also from The Next Reel. We are looking at John Favreau's 2008 film Iron Man. And back with us again today, we have Dr. Arnold Blumberg from the Marvel Cinematic Universe Review Podcast. Welcome back, Arnold. Hello again. We are looking at Minute 69 from Iron Man. On today's show, the minute starts with Obadiah's interview getting interrupted by Tony's arrival, and it ends with Agent Coulson letting Tony know that they need to debrief him. Pretty much nothing matters in this minute until 10 seconds in. (laughs) Just more Jeff Bridges' excellence. (laughs) Exactly. He set the bar high and then. Yeah, Jeff Bridges, uh, Tony Stark, but really, uh, as, as you're alluding to, Pete, we get the fantastic uh stanley cameo this is our minute with good old stanley <laughs> this is so he he doesn't i i've totally forgotten this he doesn't even get a line no well he has a line in the script and apparently they shot it in the script he turns around while tony's still there tony sees him he goes like oh sorry wrong guy and then uh, lee says that's okay i get that all the time and hmm. that was the that was the cameo. And then I, I I mean, obviously, they didn't edit that down to create this one because Tony just keeps on walking. Yeah. Um, so I, they just shot it a couple different ways and went with this one. But um, there's something really funny about just seeing him turn. And he definitely has that Hugh Hefner look. <laughs> I think it does work comically more that he doesn't say anything. But I guess at the time, too, what's interesting about it is it has now become this enshrined thing. Stan will appear in every film. And of course, now we're facing a world where I suspect, well, there, there have been some that have been shot and there, and there are ways that I'm sure they'll find a way to keep his presence felt. But at this point, we had no idea that was going to become a thing, although I think most of us could have predicted it. But just the idea that he's there at all was amazing. Just to see him and say, oh, isn't that nice? It's Stan. Could never imagine that eventually it would build to a point where he gets to have usually a good comic beat. He gets a great line. And uh, so it's like the beginning of all that. It, it's the beginning of all that. And I think what's fascinating is it, it actually takes Stan Lee's uh, sort of personality and and makes him so much more famous because it expands him to an audience that he never would have touched, right? The cinematic audience, people who never knew the comics wouldn't have known Stan Lee or Kirby from, you know, from any other Joe on the street. And, and it makes Stan Lee a personality uh, in yeah. a totally new way at, at the very end of his, his life and career. I think that's just amazing. Uh, and, and some people like like I grew up with him uh, with hearing him. I mean, I knew his name yes. from the comics and stuff, mm. but I, I grew up hearing him as kind of the the voiceover, the narrator for like Spider Man and Friends and things oh, like yeah. that. And that was that Love was my that introduction show. to kind of hearing him and always feeling welcomed by him and everything. And and having him uh, just do these cameos, I think, was just such a great uh, way to just kind of continue that that friendly presence that I always felt. Well, and Andy, to your point, to your point exactly, like that, that's the thing that makes me sort of sad that we, he doesn't get a line here because I think that, that sort of cements that connection between the voice that we grew up hearing in Spider-Man and Friends and beyond and this guy dressed like Hugh Hefner. Like when you don't hear him talk, it, you don't, you know, only the, those who are really in the know, uh, will get it. And it's interesting though that like, uh, that this moment, it's fleeting, but the camera stops and spends the time to to linger on him. It it assumes a knowledge on the part of the audience that certainly couldn't have been all pervasive at that point. 
And like you were saying about like lending him an additional level of celebrity, there would be tons of people going to see this movie that wouldn't recognize him. And yet the movie seems to behave as if this is a big deal, which it yeah. is. And it's like, so anybody that didn't know would at least be getting the feeling, oh, am I supposed to recognize him? And it's yeah. interesting how yep. much importance they're giving him in that moment. And it's it's really cool. He he actually started doing his appearances in, in little cameos in the TV movie, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. That's right. Jerry Foreman back in 1989. And then he had a few little appearances uh, here and there and then a, a lot of appearances in non-Marvel properties. Even in Blade, actually, in 98, he had a, an appearance, but it ended up getting cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but He's then in, in X-Men, uh, too. Yeah, starting with uh, the, with X Men back in two thousand, and then Spider Man two thousand two, Daredevil two thousand three, and Hulk. Um, it just really kind of spirals from there, and it became a regular thing in in I'm pretty sure every uh, every Marvel property after that, at least the films, uh, TV shows. You know, you know, maybe an episode here and there. Certainly not every episode, but it's something that became a thing, and like. Uh, you know, Hitchcock back in the day, it became kind of a fun thing for people who, uh, as they started realizing who he was of kind of finding him. And, and you know, I, my kids love it now when they see him and go, Oh, there he is. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I love that they do that now. It's just, it's a great little, uh, thing to kind of, uh, help connect it for the kids and just make, give it that extra level of, of meta enjoyment. Well, and I can't, I just can't help but connect it, you know, when to this moment to, uh, and we just saw Spider-Man again in the theater. We wanted to catch it before it left. Uh, and uh, the the moment of seeing Stan as a cartoon, uh, you know, as an animated version of himself uh, is, I mean, it's just now I'm sitting there with my daughter and we're just like choking up because, you know, you yeah. know that this is, this is kind of the transition uh, to the movies without Stan, even though I think, I think we have one more. I'm, um, I think he, he shot through the end of Endgame, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but it's still like, this is the beginning of the end of the Stan Easter eggs. And, and now, you know, a decade later, those mean something, uh, you know, uh, much, much more than, than they did. And it all started right here. There's uh, what I think is a really interesting connection to, uh, to him and particular Iron Man and Tony Stark. In the TV series Avengers Assemble, uh, he actually provided the voice of Tony Stark. He played future Tony Stark in in three episodes, which I think is a really a really funny uh, and surprising uh, uh, character that I didn't expect to see on his roster. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, but uh, yeah, Hugh Hefner or Hugh Hefner, uh, Stanley does have. <laughs> He Plus does enough. have several several women on his arms there. He's got uh, Lana Kinnear, uh, Nicole Lindeblad, uh, and uh, Masha Lund. Well, actually, there's credited four women as Stan's girls. The other is Gabrielle, uh, I don't know, Tweet, Tweete. Um, and I, looking at them and trying to pinpoint who they are, I actually think Nicole is the one that asks Tony if he remembers her when he says, sure, don't. Mm. I think that's Nicole. Yeah. And I think the other three are the ones who... Um, are with Stan. Again, it's just a nice thing to uh, perhaps, you know, maybe nowadays we're like, eh, I don't know how how well that plays. But in context of creating this this faux Hugh Hefner character, it actually uh, works pretty well. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
so this is uh we we get this nice moment here with uh with Obadiah and uh and Tony as as um, Obadiah is surprised and you get that look on his face you know he's not expecting to see Tony um you know he's told Tony to uh you know keep a low profile stay out of the spotlight because the last time that they were in the spotlight together, Tony told everybody that they're no longer manufacturing weapons. And now here they are with a camera pointed directly at them as, uh, as they have this, uh, brief little exchange. It's, you know, I, I, I try to get a sense of, uh, as we play through the scenes with Obadiah in the initial creation of the script, the idea was to have my understanding is Obadiah was going to be a character, but not necessarily the, the antagonist of the film. Perhaps they were saving him to be an antagonist for later films. Um, the idea, I think, at the time was still to have the Crimson Dynamo or perhaps the Mandarin himself as the villain. And so I always wonder with scenes like this, did they know yet that Stain was going to be the villain? Or or was this a, a still a point where it's like, yeah, it still is the Crimson Dynamo. We're just kind of giving Stain this, this vibe. What do you guys think? I think, for one thing, I think it's a credit to Jeff Bridges' performance. I know I've already made it clear how much I love him in this movie particularly. But I think it's a credit to him that the relationship he builds with Downey's Tony Stark feels so real. And yet, there isn't anything... I mean, it's, it's, it's suitably shocking when it needs to be, but also simultaneously, it doesn't feel unnatural or at all surprising that he could be the villain and that he could be against him. It's It feels equally organic if he hadn't been than, than the fact that he has. And I think it's just that he's great at creating that character and he seems to be someone that has genuine emotional connection to Tony. And so it also makes it all the more realistic to find out why he's motivated the way he is and it kind of works that whether he knew or didn't at any point in the production, it's almost like it doesn't matter. In fact, it may even have been better, you know, if that was a little vague, yeah. because it may have made that performance a little more natural. And uh, and then when that turn happens, it, it still feels very right. I, I think Jeff Bridges is the lenticular postcard of performances here. <laughs> That's when you watch it beautiful. the first time, you know, it it is it, that that shot when he turns around at like 37, 38 seconds and says, look at you. It, it, it looks like he's genuinely surprised in kind of a PR moment that Tony is up and healthy and, and out of his garage. When you watch it a second time, to me, that reads totally sinister. He absolutely <laughs> knows that uh, that he was trying to get rid of Tony and things are moving, uh, you know, in a new direction and uh, um, and and that this is going to be ultimately trouble for him. And I, I think... You know, having the gift of of rewatchability is is one of the great strengths of of Bridges in this movie. I don't think they've had very many other villains. I, I don't I don't subscribe, by the way, to the the constant railing against the the Marvel movies villain problem. I don't think it's quite as all pervasive as people tend to make it out to be. I think it's a case by case thing. But I do. Would you fi- would you before you do outline the Marvel movie villain problem? Oh, sure. Well. The, the in general, it seems it's become one of the standard beats for a lot of people uh, writing critiques, whether they're on the side of of genuinely liking the movies or whether they're just you know trashing them. Is this idea that 
Marvel has a villain problem, that somehow the villains in the Marvel movies are somewhat perfunctory, that they that they don't really come across as full characters, that their motivations are either vague or too pat. Uh, depending on who's writing about it, the, the circumstances can be a little different. But basically the idea being their villains are terrible and they're not nuanced enough and not complex enough. One thing we did talk about in one of the minutes I've, I've shared with you so far is that it is true that Marvel tends to be a bit repetitive in some of their general themes, and that speaks to the villain problem a little bit. So I agree that sometimes the movies are a bit repetitive and relying too much on father-son stories as an underpinning. So that part, I think, is true. But I still feel that very often they've had characters that serve the purpose of whatever story is being told in a way that's usually pretty good, if not excellent. But I do think that Bridges' performance in this, I don't think they've had many other villains in the whole history of the series so far that can match his performance in this first movie. As a character that feels like the kind of villain you can almost understand and empathize with on a certain level. I think Vincent D'Onofrio in Daredevil is one of the, the gold standards for that. And it's telling that that didn't happen in a movie. Right, right. Great example, that one. Jeff Bridges is just great with the subtext. And that, I think, speaks to Pete's comments earlier and about how you can read it so many different ways. What is it that he's thinking? Is it just the business side of things? Is there something else going on? Uh, certainly in retrospect, after you've seen the film, you can read a lot more into these looks. But without having seen the film before, and I had not been a comic book reader before I saw this movie. I didn't know that if I knew the name Stain was involved, I would have instantly known that, oh, well, he's a villain in the comics, but yeah. I didn't know that. And so I walked into this going, oh, it's Jeff Bridges. You know, he's he's Jeff Bridges. He's a great character. And and here he's kind of this, this uh, tough businessman, but you don't necessarily get the sense that he's a villain, especially the way they're setting up Raza, as we've been talking about. Uh, so we go from this scene uh, and we go inside the concert hall. And now we're in a, a beautifully lit room that feels like it was, I, I don't know if it always looks this way or if it just uh, was lit this way because it has a nice uh, blend of kind of the golden red that mm -hmm. feels like Iron Man, like we're inside the suit weirdly. It's all Tony's world. We're just living in it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We go with Tony up to the bar. And uh, of course, we've got uh, Agent Coulson conveniently standing right there uh, next to the flowers. And it's a, it's a nice little moment uh, for Tony as, uh, as he gets to chat with the Agent Coulson here. Oh, Clark Gregg is just so wonderful. There's another. This, this movie is just filled with uh, incredibly great performances. And also, here's a character that is so desperately important to the entire future of this extended franchise is to create a character who will serve as the actual connective tissue that will make this whole world fit together and ultimately like drive so much of like the first big emotional climactic peak of this whole series and and he's just so damn lovable and it's like what an amazing stroke of genius to have somebody play a government agent that doesn't instantly make us suspicious i i he's just he's so pleasant <laughs> 
I mean, you can almost you look at this shot and it's like the bar is underlit and, you know, they're a little bit underlit and you could almost argue there's a bit of a sinister aspect because you don't know who this guy is. You don't know what's going on. Although if you're a fan, and as soon as you hear wh- who he works for, it's like, well, we know where this is going. But um, but he's just so nice that you can't help to think, well, you know, this, this is a good guy. And the fact that he is just a good guy is so important. And they play it, uh, it's funny how they play it for laughs so often through the first part of this film, because every time he's been reaching out, one, the acronym is <laughs> is very unwieldy, and they always make <laughs> jokes about it, which I think is great. But two, it's always about these meetings, and Pepper keeps putting him off, and, and uh, Tony obviously is getting the message that you know this, this agent wants to debrief him, because he knows who he is, he vaguely remembers the name of the organization. But he still is kind of putting him off, and I, I just think it's funny that it's it's this little thing that he you know he just kind of keeps popping up as that comic character who's who's always just like oh excuse me, but never quite gets the response that he's looking for, and it ends up working really nicely, especially uh, later in the film. But uh, but here, it's it's just this nice uh, beat that ends up you know creating this uh, additional moment of levity which I think uh, works really nicely. I also think that one of the things that's interesting about, well, again, like Clark Gregg is just, just the lovability of Coulson is that, and I've often uh, talked about and taught elsewhere in, the, in my class about stuff like the, Tony Stark being this extraordinary choice to start the series off, that on the one hand, you could say there's so many things about that character you wouldn't automatically think, well, let's start with an audience identification character who is a wealthy, out-of-touch arms dealer who doesn't <laughs> you know, really understand his own emotional <laughs> being. And, and yet, that's how that works because we see him rebuild himself in this first film and that brings the audience in. But in many respects, it's Coulson who is the emotional connection for the audience first he's this lovable character who provides these moments of lightness and then as you start to see this character is going to keep threading through he builds such goodwill with the audience that's like we're we grow to be so happy every time you oh here's colson again and that becomes so important so in in some respect he's a major key to why this series starts off strong and develops the connection with a movie going audience that it did and the fact that we take this this nebbishy federal agent and make him a guy that you are absolutely emotionally bowled over by as the arc of his character continues in the cinematic universe, recognizing that I probably haven't seen those, you know, because of our own internal rule set. I uh, I, I think that is a, a magical thing that they did with this character. This character who is nothing more than sort of an annoyance in this movie uh, becomes something so grand. Well, and even in this movie, uh, well, we don't know this for sure, but you know, <laughs> there there will be a chance for growth, and that's something I think yeah. that's important with with storytelling and, and screenwriting is allowing not just for your your main character to have that character arc, but to allow other characters to also have some character arcs and sure. and get to see them grow and change over the course of the film. And and seeing uh seeing this character become more important later, I think, is a real strength. And uh and you know, obviously it came largely because of the casting of Clark Gregg, because he was so great. And they thought that, man, this guy is so good, we have to put more of him in here. And lucky for us, it worked out that way. Absolutely. 
the inside of the, I don't know, I'm, I'm going, since now we're inside, I'm looking at images of the inside. The inside of the building, is that really the Disney, uh, like the, a lobby around the Disney concert hall? Do we, do you know? Or is that like a set? Yeah. My understanding is they, they actually filmed it here. Yeah. My understanding is they, they filmed all of these scenes here. Mm. Okay, so one of the things that is uh, just a weird uh, coincidental aside, uh, my kids are now old enough to watch Glee. Uh, when it was on the show was not you know, something that my kids were old enough to watch. So we're doing sort of a family run through of Glee. And we're in the weird sort of Cousin Oliver series season when all the original kids have grown up and left. And so they replace them with young kids, uh, high school kids again, supposedly, you know. But the, they screw up and they send the original kids to New York and the Whoopi Goldberg storyline in that season she runs this this supposed theater at the New York Academy of Dramatic Arts and all of the performing takes place in this room hmm. which is crazy uh that it would come up in that sort of weird little season of that show uh and also here i had no memory of it but it is such an iconic location that uh, it's it's hard to miss by the way i also wanted to just point out this one of the little things while i'm looking at the interiors too was nice little touches that's not as uh bigger or flashy as like a big set piece or like a big sign design but just keeps world building is starting around 38 seconds like when Tony comes to the bar behind the bartender guy, just a real tiny type on the wall. It says "Gift of the Stark Foundation," and you know that mm, you know yeah. his his money's in this too. And of course, it's his you know it's his benefit and everything. It's just like the little touches. Like they didn't even need to bother putting that on the wall, but they did, and it yeah. just it makes yeah. it feel real. It's it's funny that you point that out because uh, one, I I definitely appreciate that too, but. I, I I can't stop looking at the bartender's reaction when <laughs> when Tony orders his drink. Uh, you know, he well he says, you know, uh, give me a scotch, I'm starving or whatever he says. But the bartender like gives him this weird like, yeah, it's almost like a weird, yeah, why not? Shrug. I like I, I it's just such a strange reaction <laughs> to Tony. <laughs> He's trying this to pat, looks like he's trying to pat his part there a little bit, maybe. <laughs> well, it looks like this is the exact yang to Jeff Bridges' yin when he's comforting the extra who's going to be working with him, saying, "Don't worry, man, it's going to be okay." And yeah. this is like this guy being intimidated by Robert Downey Jr. and Robert does nothing to, <laughs> to make <laughs> to this guy it. feel <laughs> at ease. He's just like, "Nope." So this is that this is that nervous reaction that he's <laughs> yeah giving there. He would be more like, you know, come on, dude, man up. We got to shoot this thing. (laughs) (laughs) We got a party to get to. Uh, 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 I don't think I have anything else for this minute. What about you guys? It's it for me. No, it's it for me, too. All right. Well, Arnold, uh, we got one more minute tomorrow. But uh, before we uh, jump into that one, um, thanks for joining us again today. It's a pleasure. Do you want to remind everybody where they can find you out online? You can track me down on Twitter at Doctor of the Dead, and you can find my publishing company where we do titles on all sorts of pop culture things you love, like zombies and superheroes and television shows of all kinds at atbpublishing.com. All right, everybody. Well, that is it for today's show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show for free at marvelmovieminute.com. Join us over in our Discord chat room and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And if you like what we do and you want to support us and get some cool stuff, become a patron over at patreon.com slash The Next Reel. Until next time, true believers. True believers.